Welcome back to the Dealmakers Podcast Show with serial entrepreneur Alejandro Cremades, best-selling author of The Art of Startup Fundraising and co-founder at Panthera Advisors. In this podcast, we ask our guests about their successful acquisitions and financing rounds. Hey guys, so just a quick overview here on Panthera Advisors, as I think it might be of value to you. So Panthera Advisors exist in order to help founders that are in the process of raising capital or get their company acquired. I actually started the company out of incredible frustration because during my entrepreneurial journey, which involved building, financing, scaling, and exiting companies, I could not find a resource that was founder-friendly and I could not get the type of support that I was seeking. So as a result, I made a ton of mistakes along the way. So if you're looking to raise capital, or you are looking to get your company acquired, or just need some sound financial planning, and you're looking to get the best possible outcome in the shortest period of time, feel free to learn more by visiting us at pantheraadvisors.com, or just reach out directly and shoot me a note at alejandro at pantheraadvisors.com. Alrighty, hello everyone and welcome to the Deal Maker Show. So today I think that the the founder that we have, I mean, definitely super interesting, you know, gone the full cycle, bootstrapping, now, you know, raising capital, you name it. Uh, and I think that it's going to be quite an exciting story. So without further ado, let, let me welcome our guest today, Tom Shea. Welcome to the show. Hi, Alejandro. Uh, great, glad to be here. So originally born and raised in Michigan. So how was life growing up there? It was very interesting, as you can imagine. If you see today's uh, times, when I grew up, uh, we grew up thinking that we were the center of the universe, with General Motors being number one on the Fortune 500 for 75 years in a row. Now being worth a fraction of Uber, so uh, pretty interesting time to see that go that entire direction. And did you have, a, let's say, people in your family also uh, in this segment? And then also, did you have anyone in your family that was an entrepreneur or that had their own business? Uh, very interesting. Yes. My father was an entrepreneur, but it didn't, it didn't work out well for him. He actually hit a, a, a sort of a snag and, and didn't, wasn't real fond of it because he had to sort of start over, but he had that, that bug. He really preferred that I would go work at a large company, uh, and make that my career, my entire, uh, you know, spend 30 years at a big company became sort of the, the idea. And so I had to deal with a little bit of that, uh, my crazy, uh, and what I'm doing here. So then why, why did you go at, uh, you know, to university and study, you know, really develop that expertise around accounting and finance? Well, it was, it was interesting. Again, um, starting to think about uh, these, these large companies, Chrysler, General Motors, Ford, all being in my backyard here, you kind of see this opportunity. Lots of you know, friends' parents were in corporate finance in these, in these large companies, and it seemed interesting. I liked Wall Street. I was reading every book I could on you know, back in the day, liars poker and den of thieves, and just sort of very interested in finance in general, which uh, also kind of led me down that technical path as a tangent. So, um, you know, just just I think a lot of a lot of big corporations around us here, and uh, a lot of business and engineering in, in the Michigan area here. That's amazing. Uh, and obviously, you did go into the automotive space. It all started with an internship in an internship with Chrysler, and then it kind of like developed a little bit farther over the course of the next year. Or so, so what did you do there? Because it shifted quite a bit. Yeah, and I, I think it, it. I think it's important to note during that time. So I, I, I was really, really interested in, in, in finance, as I said, and was was hopeful to 
maybe someday become the CFO of a big company. So that's all I really thought about them. But on the side, I was writing software um, just as an entrepreneur, just out of having uh, a passion for programming that I that I had by having an exposure in a computer in our house at a young age when when uh, a lot of people didn't have that. So my father kind of uh, kept that around and it, and it gave me that opportunity to tinker and eventually start selling software. So that pushed me while I was furthering my career, which I didn't know in, in finance, it was really a, a strong uh, way for me to, a great way for me to understand business and understand business problems that have to be, become disciplined, learn how to be an operator and how big companies operate. But at the same time, I kept coming home at night and reading and working on software and selling uh, some, some smaller pieces of software to businesses uh, in my spare time. Uh, and eventually those two things collided later on. Yeah, I mean, obviously, you ended up uh, doing your own thing for sure. So, obviously, after spending uh, a few years here in the in the industry, in the automotive industry, then you ended up doing consulting, and then, you know, basically, that was the segue into later on starting your first business, your real business, Upstream Software. So, why don't you tell us, you know, what led you, you know, to Upstream, and, and how did you come up with the idea, and how did you bring it to life with your brother-in-law? Yes, I. So when I think about uh, the, the the that's a great way to think about it, bringing it to life because you really feel uh, it, it's it's quite a process to start a company. And you know, after that time in corporate finance, you know, I had I had learned quite a bit, had good experience in interacting with executives and in working, um, you know, on some sophisticated business problems at very complicated businesses. So I had a good idea of what corporate finance needed and was working heavily in the financial consolidation reporting area. And saw some of the challenges that were going on with these large businesses, and start at again as I had mentioned, I had been writing software. I did spend a little bit of time in consulting at, at, at BDO, which gave me a chance to test the waters and make some more complicated uh, software, uh, write contracts for them, deliver it, sell it, and sort of practice. Uh, even I was under the umbrella of a of a larger consulting company, but I had a lot of free reign, and it let me get a taste of being an entrepreneur with maybe a little bit less risk. They gave me a lot of uh, leeway there. And that sort of led to that, that brief experience after my automotive experience gave me the confidence to see that, wait a minute, I, I have the, I, the way I like to explain it is I say, I can, if I can, if I can go kill it, uh, clean it and cook it, uh, why am I, why am I doing that for somebody else? If I can do all three of those things. So if I know how to find the deal, get the deal, sign the deal, I think I might have a fair chance here of of uh, becoming an entrepreneur and being successful myself. So I saw an opportunity to productize some of the custom software that I had been working on, which eventually became OneStream. And again, that was started, yes, with my, my brother-in-law, my best friend. And it was, you know, that's what really led us. Uh, you know, you had some people that believe in you pretty pretty heavily to, to jump on board. And, and I would say that, you know, doing it with your brother-in-law is also a little bit risky because you don't want to make the Thanksgiving dinners go a little bit awkward. Yeah. Right? Yeah, exactly. You always have to be careful about doing business with uh, friends and family. But uh, if it uh, if it's somebody that you're really aligned with and you can trust them and they have your back, uh, those are the best. Those are the I found that that's the best people uh, to, to work with, at least in the early days, because all entrepreneurs know that there's a lot of doubt and there's a lot of uh, things are never as good as they seem and they're never as bad as they seem. So you want to work together and make sure that you can help each other keep perspective. Absolutely. I mean, obviously the outcome was successful, so so I'm sure that the the relationship is still there. So so in terms of the business model for 
for upstream what what was the business model well in terms of uh you know that was traditional uh software at that time where you're you're basically selling licenses and maintenance and you have service component to implement the software so if you think of the revenue streams were really really kind of pretty straightforward you had your soft you, you had a recurring revenue arr component but more in the traditional uh model versus the SaaS model um but still you know a great business in the sense that you've created intellectual property and you're reselling it. And then you have a component to successfully implement that at these major customers. But one of the things that was really a hallmark of both of our companies was, was and is still sort of a very simplified mission statement. And that is every customer will be, will recommend our, our, our company and our product and our services. That's all we focus on is that customer success. And we try to build the business one customer at a time because if you think about it as an entrepreneur, if I can get one customer to pay for my product or my service and be happy with it, then I probably have a pretty good opportunity to just repeat that and just take my time and repeat it in a, in a controlled manner. Got it. Got it. And obviously here, you guys didn't raise any money. Why didn't yeah. you raise any money? Well, again, it was just this mentality of... Um, I think, you know, when, you know, all the way back to the automotive uh, starting point, you're used to, you're, you're, you learned a discipline because automotive suppliers at the time are, you know, where you're talking 20, $30 billion companies, we're not talking little companies, but they're typically low margin businesses. And you learn, I learned how to operate for 10 years uh, in a company and what it meant to manage costs and expense and, uh, and how to, you know, basically how to manage cash. So in starting this, we felt that, hey, we each put in, the funny thing is we each put in $7,000 to start. Uh, upstream. So $21,000 was used to start it. We basically brought, I think, a couple printers and a projector and uh, each bought a computer. And we were off to the races coding and then started running around the country trying to demo the product. Wow. I mean, obviously, that was uh, something that worked out pretty well because uh, the company ended up getting acquired by, uh, is it called Hyperion or Hyperion? Hyperion, yep. Hyperion, and then Hyperion got acquired by Oracle. So uh, yes. not bad. So why why did you decide that the acquisition was the way to go? Because obviously here you were already at it for close to seven years. So it seems that the trajectory and creating something that is self-sustained was there. So so why why selling the business? This is this is really this is one of the a kind of a really interesting part of the story, and and it's one of these uh, something that. In hindsight, you look really lucky and it was fantastic. And at the same time, um, while, while you're going through it, the, the relationship with Hyperion was one of, I'll call it a love-hate, love relationship. We became a very strong partner with Hyperion early in our, in our life cycle because they were the leading company for financial planning and reporting. 60% uh, of the Fortune 500 used them. And we really oriented the company around their market and their customers and their partner network and, and, all, and, all, and all basically their whole ecosystem. And so we were really successful in making their customers uh, successful, but they also had products that kind of competed with ours. So when we when we would go and win a deal and win it jointly with them, it would be that sale that individual sales rep at Hyperion would love us, and our and 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 Craig, my business partner and you know best friend and founder, was all excited. But then you know we would get threats from them on the other side that hey we we want to go and write this product potentially. Uh, within our city because they had a like I said a competing product there was the people responsible for that competing product did not like us so it was really really challenging but we kept persevering and, and I would have one side of the coin where I'd say that's it 
you know, I'm really frustrated and angry about this because of the way the partnership is going. And my, my, you know, Craig and my business partners, they would be thinking, Hey, let's, uh, you know, we got to stick this out. Maybe we can get a deal with them. Well, we ended up signing an exclusivity deal with them in the long and short based on our success with their customers that allowed them to resell our product in a, in a way, in a sense where they were, they were basically paying their, their, um, sales reps, a bit of a commission to, to actually sell our product. And that was really, really transformative to our business. But as you can imagine, along with that was exclusivity, meaning we couldn't sell to their competitors, but we end up going from 10 sales reps of our own to the hundreds of reps that they have. And it really expanded the business. But as of that, when that, when we signed that contract, you knew the writing was on the wall that eventually they would probably want to acquire us because we were almost acting as a, as a, a unit of, of Hyperion or a business uh, owned by Hyperion. Very nice. Very nice. So obviously after the, the acquisition, which was reported to be in the neighborhood of 50 million, so not bad of an outcome when it's fully bootstrapped and it all goes to your pockets uh, instead of having to give it to investors. I guess uh, here you spend quite a bit of time. You know, obviously there was no competes, divesting and resting, you name it. But then eventually, you know, it's, uh, as they say, once an entrepreneur, always an entrepreneur. And here you are, you know, thinking about what's going to be next. And, and then all of a sudden, you know, another opportunity, one stream, you know, comes knocking. So how did that happen? Well, again, back to the to the upstream and you, the, the names, you know, you can see there's some confusion there or whatever. But upstream was really involved in moving data from ERP systems up into the analytic tier uh, for financial reporting out to Wall Street. OneStream, the whole genesis of OneStream was about looking at what had happened over about a 10 to 15 year period in the, in the analytic uh, financial analytics space with Hyperion, SAP, Oracle, um, and saying, well, they keep adding more and more products uh, to this offering when a CFO then is, is left to kind of put these pieces together. So we, the one in one stream is, is quite an important part in our name. And it's all about the idea that we're trying to collapse all these various product offerings into one. We saw that as our opening and our focus. And the experiences that we all had, um, all, the, all the employees of, of Upstream and the partners that we met that were implementing our software, the engineers that we met at uh, Hyperion as we were co-engineering products and working together, that kind of created the perfect opportunity for us to to come together um, after Hyperion was acquired by Oracle and say, you know what, we know this market, we know the people that implement the software, we know the people that sell it. If we can rationalize all these different products and come up with a good uh, unified product, we see an opening here in this market where we can be an effective player and, and change uh, change the game. And that's really what led to it. Um, but there's a really critical person, another founder, uh, Bob Powers, who's part of the uh, the OneStream founding group, and, and he was a, an inventor of, of some products at Hyperion, and we hit it off early on in the early 2000s and always hoped to work together someday. And uh, all those pieces kind of came together to enable the founding of, of OneStream. Wow, because uh, obviously this was a big deal for you guys, because you are literally competing with some of the biggest software companies. And I know that there was... Um, a point in time for you where you were in your house, you know, there with a phone, with your co-founder on the line and really thinking, are we doing this or are we not doing this? So so why did you decide to go forward, you know, with, with building something against such big companies? Yeah, it's it's all about, I mean, and I think 
this is cliche to say, but it really, you have to be extremely passionate about what you're doing, especially the, the more difficult the problem is, the more passionate you have to be, because that's what sees you through the late nights and the doubt in the, in the work. And I think what we saw is we tried to maybe take an easier road. We thought that was an easier road and maybe sell a product that was tangent to these, to the large companies that we would be competing with. But in the end, you could see there just wasn't a big enough uh, there just wasn't a big enough market. And then the, the incident that you're, that you're referring there is I remember the day that we all realized that following uh, a conference that we had attended uh, where we thought you know, we were going to enter into this tangent market and we all returned from this conference and we thought, oh, there's just not a business there. And it was sort of a moment of, wow, we've been working here and we, we think we have something and we just realized that we didn't. And we all, we all sort of got on the phone and we said, okay, you know, this is what we were really meant to do, which is to, to build what we know from the Hyperion days and what we and and we can't we can't just look at it and say that these large companies are there and that we can't we don't have a chance. We have to say, let's build what we what we know, what we're passionate about. It doesn't matter if it's hard and, and let's let's see what happens. And that's really what we did. We put our heads down, uh, really worked hard. And, and the important piece there is the transition for, you know, how do you do that? It's don't look five years down the road and how do I get to a thousand employees? It was, how do I get one customer to believe in this vision? And that's really what it came down to. That's incredible. So in terms of now that you're mentioning customers, I mean, how do you guys make money? What is the, the business model so that people listening really understand it? Well, back then we started the same way that we started upstream, which was the exact same model, one customer at a time, build this on customer success sell software maintenance and services. Um, this was early in the sort of SaaS pricing subscription ARR view. We always valued ARR in the terms of maintenance on your software was a, was a really important part of the economic model. Um, but at the time in the business that we were in, as you're probably aware, you see how prevalent the cloud is. People were still really reluctant in the early days to think we're a publicly traded company. Do we want to put our financials in the cloud? Is it secure? Is it safe? So there was a lot of doubt and the, the verdict was still out or the jury was still out on whether or not um, you know, that was going to be something that people would ever get comfortable with is moving your financials to the cloud. So we sat down and we, we knew that technically we had to architect the company for the cloud technologies, which we did from day one, given all that we had learned and started. But we were sort of guarded into how we would move into the business model uh, that we're in today, which is fully all SaaS cloud kind of you know focus, but it was an evolution where we had to ride that along with our customers. So really needed to be in tune with our customers and and sort of react and, and learn from their what what they were telling us. And these are large, you know, Fortune 500 type publicly traded companies. You know, a lot of them, some were private as well, but complex large businesses and learning from them on that journey, one success at a time. And one thing that is uh, definitely interesting here on the story is that you're coming with this background of bootstrapping. So on the last business, on Upstream, you literally build it, scale it, and exit it without taking one single penny. And obviously, the outcome was fantastic. So here you are really, you know, doing a very good job on the execution side. Things are moving in the right direction. And then here you are, and you decide to raise, you know, a round, so, and, and a big round, I mean, six 600 million. So uh, I haven't heard of, a, of an institutional round, a first institutional round this big. So, I mean, it's a pretty amazing. Tom, why did you take this money? Well, as we, as you can say, you know, it's, it's kind of interesting. You know, when you think of the, the, the people that joined 
and really started to believe in that vision that I just described that, hey, we're about to try to recreate something here that's big. And it's, it's a lot bigger than upstream. You know, this was multiples, not only in the outcomes and in the, in the potential of the business, but the complexity, the people, uh, the sort of what it was going to take to to let to, to get this company to the place where we're realizing what we all thought it could be. So if I think about, you know, the offer that I would, you know, I, in the, in the early days with upstream, it was quite a, a small investment relative. We didn't invest that much more as the founding you know, bootstrapping of one stream, you know, call it 150,000 or something like that across all the, all the partners uh, that were involved. But the offer that I had to, I had to make to people in those early days was, Hey, how about, uh, you come and join us because we knew that we needed the best and brightest people in services, in sales. We needed the top top people in this industry if we were going to compete with these big guys. We had to get the right people on our side. We had to build a great product that they could believe in, but then we had to get the right people to help us, you know, implement it, sell it, uh, and they had to have that experience and come from our from our prior world. And that was really really challenging. The kind of the offers that we had to make to people were. Hey, how about you leave your job where you're making a lot of money? And by the way, it's going to cost you X to kind of buy in to help fund this. And uh, you may get paid in a couple of years if we can get the sales going uh, at that point. That's what that's that's the definition of bootstrapping right there. It's sweat, sweat equity and really working hard and being able to sacrifice and work towards that uh, that process. But I mean, it's amazing because you founded the business in 2010 and typically people would wait six to 12 months or maybe like 24 months and then go out and, and raise money. And here you are closing the deal and announcing it in 2019. So nine years later. I mean, what was that moment? Was there like a specific moment where you say, now is the time where we got to make this thing happen? Yeah, ex- it, it, that's great. So once I once we kind of got all those partners uh, on board and we sort of got into executing, so I, I kind of look at this as life cycles. You're in the very beginning there, and that what I just described with those individuals, you're, you're really in survival mode. Can we get the product? Can I get one customer to pay us for this and get successful? And then you look at it as, well, can we do this in a controlled way and repeat that to 10 customers? But you're still refining the product. You're still, because remember, we're selling to the chief, you know, chief financial officer, very risk-averse community. We had to do things right, so it has to be very controlled. There's no opportunity to fail there. So when you think of this long time run, you know, as we started to get to 10 customers and then you get to 20, you start this, you're, you're able to actually start a planning process. You're starting to exit survival and you're not really into, into thriving, but you're becoming, you, you start to focus on distribution and how can we start to scale this business to the first level of scale? You know, clearly not at a public level, but let's set a five-year plan for ourselves and let's see how we could take this business from zero or, you know, five, 10 million, you know, to a hundred million and really put some some thought behind that and some planning. And so what you saw happening there in the time frame that you just described was execution towards that, uh, towards those milestones. And really 2016, 2017, we started to see the hockey stick and that distribution in our, in our demand generation engine really picking up. And we could see that uh, the business was really starting to pick up and it was time to start thinking further down the road. We were kind of, we had kind of worked through that first five-year plan and we're seeing this this kind of loose goal that we set for ourselves of a hundred million dollars in sight. Uh, you know, we were in the high eighty high eighty million, I think, that year that we made this decision. We said, you know, how do we how do we reset here? How do we you know what what do we want this to become? Because if you're really at the growth rate, the trajectory that we are on, uh, 
you, you couldn't start, you couldn't think quarter to quarter anymore. You couldn't think year over year. You had to think three year, four year, five years out. And that, uh, at the same time, it went from hiring, you know, needing to hire 10 new sales reps to hiring 50 to hiring a hundred. And, you know, you start to have more and more capital pressure on the business and more and more, uh, need for strategic planning. And that's really what led to, to that sort of event. Um, and, but the thing that I would say about that event, that's so important is we were disciplined operators, uh, making money, producing successful customers, which really made the event of looking for that partner and helping us think five years down the road and building a big company enjoyable because uh, a lot of firms were attracted to us as an investment because of the discipline that, that we had um, instilled in the business for all those years. Got it. So obviously on the, you know, when you take the money, you know, that's quite a bit, 600 million, you need to deploy it. And I, and I, and I would assume that uh, people, you know, has been one of the areas where that growth, you know, has been going off the roof. I mean, I'm taking a look here at LinkedIn and I see that you guys are close to 200% in the last year or so in terms of employee growth. So, so how did you also grow yourself, you know, to really have, you know, that, that leadership skill set to, to, to grow in pace with the business, but then also in order to really uh, gear the ship, you know, with all these new people that you were adding? Well, you know, when I think most entrepreneurs know this, especially if you're taking a business through these different life cycles, you know, I would say we're now firmly into this scale, refinement, maturity part of our life cycle where you're looking to put the people process and system in place to account for all these people that you're adding. So, you know, as most entrepreneurs realize, if you're going through this, you kind of break every two years when you are, you know, when you're a 30 million dollar you know, revenue company and you try to become 50, you know, the, the people and processes you have in place kind of break at 50. Then you'll, you'll right size yourself and work towards a hundred. And all of a sudden you hit a hundred and you realize, well, you're still not right. And you're breaking again. And, and now you, we're getting to that point where you start to build out all the different functional areas of your business. And you're investing in, you know, areas that you might've underinvested, underinvested when you bootstrapped, you know, where you needed more people and you needed specialization and dedication so that you can then layer in. And what you're seeing is the maturity of the business happening at that point and you're starting and, and, you know, managing through that process uh, right now. So that's that's really when in, in, in our, our investor, our, our partner, we were looking for somebody that could help us rationalize that scale, um, you know, give us the, sort of the, the capital backdrop that we want, help us be more sophisticated in the way that we think about the business financially um, and really be more strategic and think further down the road. Very nice. So I guess, uh, imagine if, let's say, Tom, you go to sleep tonight, and it's a tremendous news. You wake up five years later, and you wake up in a world where the vision of one stream is fully realized. What does that world look like? For me, I, I, the example I love to use on this is, uh, you know, we always want to be the de facto product when it comes down to this type of uh, uh, relationship with the CFO. When the CFO needs to do this financial reporting at a large, prestigious company, you know, we want to have a reputation through this time frame um, that, that we've been doing the, through this customer, ongoing customer success. That when you arrive at a new business and they don't have one stream, uh, it's sort of like asking for a Kleenex. Uh, you don't ask for a tissue. You might ask for a Kleenex. You want to. We want to me having somebody ask for one stream is uh, as the default. Right? We have to have it. Tells me that we've achieved what we've set out to achieve, which is that globally recognized brand in our, in our space. Very nice. Uh, and, and obviously, 
you know, I think that it will be super interesting, you know, if, if for the people that are listening, maybe there's anything that you can share so that they can get an idea on how big one stream is, maybe like employee count or anything else that, that you think could be interesting. Yeah, I think, you know, as, as we think through the through the business right now, employee count, you know, which is interesting, even even as we go through COVID, we've still been in a, in a hiring mode. And I think we've recently crested, crested 560 employees. So we've still added more than 100 employees this year, which is still significantly lower than our original plans. But we're still happy to be sort of powering through this and, uh, you know, working in, in a way and being smart. And again, I think, um, you know, to add to that, and I guess being able to kind of continue to grow and, and manage through this, being bootstrapped and having that mentality is a great preparation for events like we're managing right now. Because when you're when you're bootstrapping a business, your life is capital constraints and cash flow. That's all you think about um, on a weekly basis. So there's no greater preparation and having that operational discipline uh, to be able to have a business and grow a business through these uh, through these types of um, trying times that we're all seeing here. Absolutely. So then how do you think about culture? Because I'm sure that, that has shaped up the culture a little bit too. It has, Mentality. you know, as, you know, as, as this uncertainty has, you know, every, everybody in one stream, we've been growing so quickly for so many, for, for our, basically our entire uh, existence has been about sort of a, you know, between 40 and 60% growth rate. And so you're, co- you were constantly just grow, grow, grow. And culturally, everyone's he- heavily aligned to that success and that journey. And as you get to this and you slow down, you stop and you reflect and you can see that people seem to appreciate uh, what our business, the culture that we've developed uh, even more in the sense that, uh, again, back to that discipline that comes from being bootstrapped, it, that's a comfort that you can offer to your employees as well, culturally, as you go through this and say, you know, we're responsible. We're not trying to get too far ahead of ourselves. Don't worry. Uh, we know that there's anxiety here. Our story hasn't changed. Our belief hasn't changed. And we'll keep working um, as hard as we can through this. And uh, the journey hasn't changed for you. We're just uh, slowing down a bit here as we as we run through this. And I think, you know, again, uh, the startup culture and transitioning to the mature company is always a challenge, but it's it's something that you can do uh, just by being transparent. That's really, really, really amazing to hear, Tom. So so one of the things that, that I typically ask the guests that come on the show is, I mean, this is your... Your second, you know, rodeo. Obviously, this one seems to be a really meaningful one. Probably the the biggest one that you've done to date. Uh, and I'm sure that you've learned, you know, a ton of lessons along the way, either in, with one stream or before with upstream. So I guess if you had the opportunity to go back in time and you were able to speak with with that younger Tom, maybe that younger Tom that is thinking about launching a business. What would be that one piece of advice that you would give to your younger self before launching a business and why, knowing what you know now? The one thing that I focus on a lot is to try to keep your emotion in check. Because when you're an entrepreneur, you you live your business, it, it just becomes part of you, you know, every day. And and if you're not careful, you can you can lose um your objectiveness in terms of how you're looking at a business problem because you become so emotional. And I look back at some of the challenging times and maybe the weekends that I, I ruined or the things that I focused on that were emotion-based versus business problem-based. That's one of the things that I've really learned over, over time. Um, you know, and that, and, and that really is something that I'm able to then complement with, 
the really smart people around me and rely on them. So, you know, the big, I know that's not that tangible, you know, there, there are, there are lessons I could learn about, you know, I could say about capitalization and things, but you, you can see a competitor or you can see a, a threat and you can make a decision that dramatically impacts your business based on emotion rather than the true facts of the business case. And I think those are some of the things that I've been able to get good advice on and work, work uh, maybe more diligently as I've been doing this longer and longer to see, prob- see, see business challenges for what they are. That's very profound. Very profound, Tom. So for the, for, for the folks that are listening, what is the best way for them to reach out and say hi? Uh, I'm on LinkedIn, so definitely would be a great place if you uh, if you want to hit me. You'll see me on on LinkedIn, and uh, that's that's probably the best place to to make contact with me. Amazing. Well, Tom, thank you so much for being on the Dealmaker Show. Thank you. Really appreciate it. If you like the show, make sure that you hit that subscribe button. If you could leave a review as well, that would be fantastic. And if you got any value either from this episode or from the show itself, share it with a friend. Perhaps they also appreciate it. So also remember that if you need any help, whether it is with your fundraising efforts or with selling your business, you can reach me at alejandro at pantheraadvisors.com. You've reached the end of another episode of the Dealmakers podcast. For free resources and materials, head over to alejandrocremades.com. Thank you for listening and see you at the next episode.